Welcome to the Disruptive Entrepreneur Podcast. What does the word disruptive mean to you? It means going beyond the ordinary, going beyond the status quo. Not thinking in the conventional way, not just sort of following the herd. Disruptive means taking things up, you know? Disruptive entrepreneur is somebody who sees the problem and embraces the problem with a new way. Shake up and awakening. Quality will take care of itself and you'll go from being disruptive but also profitable. When you use your own reservoir of talent, when you love what you do, then you disrupt. Mix it up, change it up and dominate. And now, your host, eight times best-selling author and double world record holder, Rob Moore. Hi, it's Rob Moore here and I am with Matt Fidesz. Matt Fidesz in the house now. Matt has an amazing story. I'm sure many people will know of him. Uh, and if you don't know of him, you are going to know of him after this interview. Matt and I have become Clubhouse kind of best buddies, really. Uh, we, we're similar age. We've got a similar story and didn't even know of each other until, what, two weeks ago, one week ago, Matt, on Clubhouse? Clubhouse is the thing, man. We just took <laughs> off. We reconnected. Great minds uh, come together. Law of attraction, eh? Amen to that. So, yeah, we've become, we message each other every day now, um, eight minute long WhatsApp messages. Wow. So, Matt, some of my audience may not know you. Now, normally, what I don't do uh, on a, a disruptive entrepreneur episode is get someone to tell their full story. I normally like to shake it up a bit. But I think in your instance, we need to make an exception because you have got a, a crazy story. And I know I ask you to do your intros in 30 seconds on Clubhouse, but I'm going to give you like five minutes now, Matt, to take us from the journey. Go back to a kid, take us to how you sort of built your notoriety in your career and obviously what you're really well known for. And I'm just going to sit back and listen. Over to you. Okay. Well, my name's Matt Fidesz. The martial arts world are going to know me and the fitness world and, and some of the business world will know me from TV shows like Rich House, Poor House, and being on This Morning, Good Morning Britain and stuff. But all started off from when I was at school. I uh, was a very good at school, Rob. I, I got bullied, and um, I had uh, I just wasn't good at it. I just, just didn't, didn't see a, any kind of correlation to that making me go on to be successful at all. Uh, and no confidence whatsoever. And the child who sat next to me at school, he was doing a martial art called Jiu-Jitsu at the time. And I was worried about this bully uh, who is constantly a lot bigger than me, same age, a lot bigger than me, and so on, which I'll, I'll get onto later on. Um, he was doing just petty things like kicking my legs under the table and, you know, chasing around the playground, nicking my milk and stuff like that. But when you're five, six years old, it really does attack you. And I was just skinny, little, short, child. Ch I didn't get bigger until I started doing weight training and, and training hard when I was older. Um, he just said, kind of come to this martial arts class and, uh, if this kid attacks you, you can defend yourself, you know? So I did. I went on to the class. The first lesson was free. My parents were real against it. They they classed martial arts as legalized violence, but they still they still let me go because they're worried about my safety. I was changed, I changed school seven seven times, I mean, to try and avoid it. But you attract the bullies by the way you are. I did the first martial arts class. Jiu-Jitsu was not for me. I didn't like being thrown, Rob. It wasn't for me. I hated that feeling and stuff. And then in the room next door, there was a class going on of a martial art called Taekwondo. And I just took to that. I could already do the splits for some reason. I could already do the high kicks and stuff. And I really loved kicking people in the head. I just did really enjoy it. It was just fun for me. And I said to my parents, you know, this is what I want to do for a career. And no one had ever done, done it before as far as I was aware. I was a school kid. And so I just trained five nights a week. The instructor really saw something in me, um, trained at home all the time with Red Books, Bruce Lee Fanatic, Jean-Claude Van Damme and stuff. And and I uh, just tried to watch all the movies, best of the best. And anything I could, I used to get up early four in the morning just to watch these movies before I went to school. I was just a martial arts fanatic. And then when I, when I got to about, 13 i was in a maths class and they were teaching me one of the gcse mock questions which is how many different ways can you put 50p into a phone box i just thought it was utterly ridiculous you know and actually when the gcse exam i'm not proud of this by the way i was a kid back then question was asked in my actual real exam it popped up how many different ways can you put 50p in a phone box i just put stupid question next to it so no wonder i failed at all my gcse's 
But what I did do in that maths class that day, do you know, you got the little exercise books they still use, I guess, today. On the back page, I wrote down the list of goals or things I wanted to do. And it was uh, being able to do this, some crazy things, being able to do splits on the chairs. Yeah, is a big dream for some martial artists. You, get, you regret it when you're, when you're 40, when your hips are uh, be able to kick the ceiling and stuff like that. But other things I put on there is I want to have, be the most well-known martial arts instructor in the world, have the biggest martial arts business in the world, uh, you know, be in shape and a bodybuilding standard, you know, uh, and stuff like that. Be a millionaire by the time I was 20. And I listed it. My mum kept it. She kept it. She looked at it. She kind of admired it because she was uh, one of 14 children who all got degrees. But because she had four sons young, my dad worked for the British Rail. He lost his job. She had to be the breadwinner. So my dad became like a house husband with us for us boys. And um, she home studied, started off as a legal executive um, to become a lawyer. And I really admired that. Well, my memories of her are sitting there with with the, her study books. And she always used to say, because all my family were against it, it's, you can't make any money that, especially my grandfather. He, he only passed away in, in um, November, bless him. He was 1997 almost. He took me in his shed and he said, Matthew, you need to get a trade. You need to be a plumber, electrician, because they all work for British Rail, for Brunel. In, in, um, it goes back right to my great-great-granddad. So I was either degree side for my mum, uni, or get a trade for my dad's side. And he was trying to – he said, you're never going to make any money out of kicking, kicking your legs in the side. Stop this ridiculous stuff. I, that just pushed me even more, Rob. I left school, no qualifications, 16. Uh, I knew I had to, I couldn't do what I wanted to do right then because I felt I was too young. Now, I did some strange things, right? If you look back at my pictures, and the guys who know me will remember these days. I read somewhere that people with long hair, especially men, they look older. So I grew a ponytail, which I look back now, and I think, what the heck, you know, a permed hair at some points for, for fitness videos and stuff and, and so on. And I got a job, and I studied personal training, teaching people how to – Personal trainer. The guy gave me a job in the gym as a personal trainer. I taught women how to lose weight, guys how to gain muscle. And two, I was about nearly 17. And then I realized, right, I, I want to go for this now. I didn't want to do it in my hometown because I have respect for my martial arts instructor. So I moved to a little town called Barnstable. Not very big, 30,000 people in North Devon on the coast. Beautiful place. Everyone was saying it will never work. It won't work. People down there, they won't, they won't take to it. But I thought in my head, if this has never been done before, people keep saying nothing is ever going to work down there um it, that concept but then um there'd be an opportunity i just knew there'd be an opportunity there so i got a job at the local leisure center as a lifeguard for two pounds 75 an hour and i just used that time obviously i did jump in the pool every now and then to pull a child out so i to get that in but most of the time the pool was empty and you start seeing fish after a while but i used that time to think out what what can i do here you know how can i make this a business and back then the mindset was the higher I can kick, the more students I've the track. The better I could do the splits without warming up even, the cold, the more students I can attract, you know, the more competitions I can win. When, in fact, it's not about that at all. Parents are only concerned, what are you going to do for my child? What are you going to do for me to lose weight? You know, that's all they're interested in. They're not interested in, in what you've done and so forth. So I opened up my first school. It was actually, I kept on putting it off, Rob, and I had a girlfriend at the time, and... Um, she for Christmas, we had nothing. We were in a bed sit, literally, where we changed the sofa to a bed at night and back again. My parents disowned me. They didn't talk to me for for um, a couple of years because of my decision. I wanted to be a martial arts instructor. They thought it was ridiculous. They wanted to be to be a vet. I love animals, and that's what they wanted me to do. So they cut me off. We had no money other than my two pounds seventy five an hour, and I kept on saying to her, "I'm going to open up this school. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it." And in the end, on Christmas Day, for Christmas, she got me a briefcase. She goes, you keep saying you're going to do this. Now you're going to have to because it's what I've got you. And an auntie of mine, she got me a food hamper for Christmas. That's how bad off we were financially. And then I opened up the school in August 97. And I put posters everywhere. My uncle designed me a poster. And I put them everywhere as far as I, I could see. And I was getting pages back then. It wasn't phone calls. So I'd get a page and I'd ring them back. And book, them, and book them in. I booked all these people in for this class on a Sunday morning. I, I was all excited. I turned up at the class, ready to, to teach traditional, how I've been taught, WTF Olympic Taekwondo. Nobody turned up, Rob. No one. I was gutted that my mum 
my bullies who were watching me at the time, uh, you know, and everybody, my, my network and stuff, and that it hadn't worked out. I got home, turned the TV on, and Princess Diana had died, hence why no one had turned up. Everyone was just fascinated and glued to the television. So at that point, I thought, maybe it's just because of that. Let's try again. So I tried again, and I, re I re went the next Sunday, and I had about 90 people there paying me £3 per class. I was quite happy with that. I, I could live off that. All I wanted to do, Rob, I didn't want to become a multi-millionaire, famous guy, and I think as such. I was just quite happy to do what I love, my passion for a living, teaching twice a week, £3 per class. Brilliant. Great. Fantastic. More money than I was in at the leisure centre. So the next stage will happen is I have had a friend who flew back from America and he was raging saying, Matt, you wouldn't believe what's going on in the States. There's guys over there with thousands and thousands of members and they're multi-millionaires. And my, my first reaction is that's great, but I don't want to comp compromise my standard to, to get money. Money's not the, the goal here. I still want that standard. And he said, now you've, you've got to get out there. The standards are there. These guys are amazing. They, they've worked it out. They're like 20 years ahead of us, my friend said. So I saved enough money by doing my martial arts class, charging three pounds. I used to collect it in the old ice cream containers, Rob, and go to the bank and they would laugh at me, but they slowly saw it grew. And I opened up the bank account of £100 in it because back then that was a requirement. But she had faith in me, the bank manager did. She saw my ambition. So I, I saved enough money, flew out to San Francisco where there's this martial arts business conference going on. Over a 1,000 people there, great speakers, multimillionaires. And one in particular, I wasn't scared to approach people. One in particular was a, was a very, very um, wealthy, successful man. I introduced myself. I was 17. He said, listen, you know, listen, bro, you know, if you want to be successful, I so admire your ambition, what you've done. You're so young and you flew out here you've, and you walked up to approach me, which not many people do. Follow me for the next week or two and model what I do, everything, what I eat, what, how I train. Go to my classes, write notes. Keep taking notes over and over again. Take the stuff back to English. I want nothing from it. If it works, great. Some of the systems of business concepts. I, I don't say I don't know England. If some of it might work, some of it might not. I just admire ambition. So I follow this guy around. He actually takes advice off me now. We're, we're close friends. He's in the 60s now. Um, and the guy was crazy as far as I was concerned because uh, he was getting up at 4 a.m., going to the gym, doing all the stuff you would now start normal, like the people at the 5 a.m. club and stuff like that, you know, that be what he's gratitude for, then his business planning. By midday, most of his, we call it busy work, was out of the way. And then he'd see his family, and then I'd go to his class. I came back with all these notes. I was so motivated. I couldn't sleep, you know. I just wanted to implement this stuff. Now, most of it worked, Rob, but a lot of it didn't. Like the high fives didn't go down well. I tried to enjoy high fives in classes. Mm -hmm. Like, what are you doing, you know? Music on the martial arts lessons is unheard of as well. So that so I made this adaption. I was the first guy in England to to put people onto direct debit. Actually, back then it was standing order for martial arts. Everyone said I'll never work. Now, as soon as I did that, and 100 members on a direct debit of an average price of 49 a month, I secured myself residual income. I just taught twice a week, and my overheads were 15 pound a night. Um, so the rest of the time, I just trained and sat on the beach and. Uh, and stuff and things like that. I mean, that was it. And then I got excited and I thought, can I do it again? So I went, there's this building and I went to the agent. He said, you, you really trying to make money out of martial arts. Uh, but luckily the building was owned by an estate agent and my mum was a convincing lawyer. So there was a connection there. So I said to him, give me six months rent free. Just give me a chance. And my mum kind of talked him into it as well, bless her. And, uh, and um, yeah, he gave me a chance. And I remember on New Year's Eve there, it's right on the square, right in the front high street in Barnstable. I was painting the walls there with my girlfriend at the time, watching all the New Year celebrations going on, thinking, am I doing the right thing? Is I hope this is going to work out, using the little money I'd saved. But the rest is history. I mean, I put all the systems in place when the first to do it. Six months later, 700 members, average price of a family rate was about £79 a month, plus with all the other income streams linked to it, like grade-ins and all the other spin-offs. I was making eighty thousand pounds a month, and my overheads were two or three thousand pounds a month for uh, expenses. And uh, te teaching more classes, I was teaching twenty-five classes a week back then, so I never had any staff, so it's a bit of burnout. And then I went on to expand it to five or six locations, and then things got very crazy. I had a, I still remember to this day how this guy walked in, he asked for me, and by then I had a receptionist then, and 
I had trainee instructors and so on. And he said, I'm a reporter. I work for a, a news agency called South West News. And I've been hearing about this, this guy. I would like to know if Matt would like to have an interview about his life story. And I was like, sure. He wants to talk about the bullied boy. His kids come to the class. So he worked out some figures on the calculator. Then he realized I've done it five times in other local towns. And he, and he did an interview with me, just like we're talking about now. Um, took some pictures. And I said, is it for the local paper? I was excited about that. He said, yeah, yeah, well, wherever it may be. I'm going to put it on the wire, he said. Well, two days later, I was front page of the Sun newspaper, the, the Star, the Mail, everything. Bully Boy becomes becomes millionaire, you know, and uh, they had a little cute picture of me when I was uh, young. And then me now, at Ferrari by that point. I know we love Ferraris, me and you. And How old were you, Matt? Quickly. How old were you when you became a millionaire? Uh, well, if you're talking about cash in the bank and stuff, by the time I was 20, I was I was a proper wow. millionaire. Yeah. I mean, the business was worth a million if I wanted to sell it by the time I was, you know, 19 years old. But yeah. proper, proper millionaire, where I was able, I had like five houses at that point as well. So I had a passive income where I didn't have to work anymore. Hi, it's Rob here, interrupting you with something you may not know about me. I was one of the few people on the planet hand-selected by Facebook to pilot their new supporter program. It's a very small premium model where you can get exclusive content and advance notice or discount of new products and services. So this is what I've done for you. Not only can you get best discounts, for any training that we might run. Not only do you get notified first of any launches we do, we also do supporter meetups, supporter dinners, supporter WhatsApp groups where you have a a deeper community. I do supporter only ask me anything. I do supporter only content and podcasts. We have a community of 2,500 supporters and I'd love to give you the chance to be one of those. I believe this is the best supporter program in the whole world. Find me a better one, but I don't think you will. So the link is bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. That's bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R. I believe the gap between free content and paid content is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a lot of free content out there that's maybe not that good. And for just a few dollars a month, you can get the best content on business, on entrepreneurship, on starting up, on scaling up, on sales, on marketing, on the mindset of being an entrepreneur. So go to bit.ly forward slash Rob Supporter with a capital R right now. How big did you get the um, business in the end? Well, the, the business went to, um, well, at the moment, it's got that, that particular business, the martial arts, 1,018 locations. Wow. Um, that, that was through franchising. That yeah. was through franchising. Matt, we'll talk about franchising in a bit because I want to hold that because I've got lots of entrepreneurs that follow me, and that's a great business model. Um, Obviously, you're very famous for something else. And I want to talk more about you on this episode, because it's you I want to interview. But we can't get away from the fact that what you're really famous for. So can you tell us how that happened? Yeah, well, you couldn't make it up, Rob. It's like a fairy tale. That reporter, reporter, so the stories went out. On the back of that, I had lots of TV appearances. I don't know if you remember Trisha, Esther Rampson, Kilroy. Yeah. I, on the back of the newspaper, you normally get invited on TV shows. So I worked all them. Then this phone call came out of the blue from um, a bodyguard to Yuri Geller saying, Yuri Geller wants to meet you. Um, you know, I only knew, knew him as Bending Spoon, if I'm honest, Rob. But I, my parents said, you can't go meet this guy. He's got companies all around the world. He's internationally famous. And he lived in Sondland-on-Thames in Reading. He's got a replica of the White House, a very, very successful investor. Knows what he's doing. Not just a spoon vendor. That's just a gimmick to draw people in, basically. And I don't know how he does it, guys. I don't know. I've probably seen it more than most people. He's my best friend. Um, we became close friends. He's godfather to my um, daughter. I knew he had a lot of famous friends. He used to coach and consult people. And I, I remember some presidents would ring him and stuff and um, some pop stars, but I never heard of the name Michael Jackson ever be mentioned at all. Now, this is the crazy thing. So me and my girlfriend went to Wembley Stadium, and I stood amongst 80,000 people getting squashed to death, pushed when Michael came on stage. He did eight nights in a row and uh, watched him do his thing. And I was very impressed, but not just by his, by his dance and singing, but 
by looking at a man and then i was just thinking i'm trying to be successful financially here this guy is a multi-billionaire you know the most famous man in the world and i'm staring at him thinking how there he says what a story and i think but back then he's about, about my age actually now and then um yeah i came away from that loved it now yuri on the way home he uh called me and he said how did you get on with the show I said, Euro, I thought it was great, you know? And then we had a conversation about it, and I said, I didn't get this hit. The, the fans were screaming so much over it. I didn't really get to hear much of the music, but, you know, I really enjoyed it. And that was it. He didn't say nothing that his best friend was Michael Jackson. I had no idea. So, I, um, yeah, about, about two weeks later, I had a phone call at three in the morning. Now, this is not unusual for Yuri Geller. All successful people work through the night. You know, I'm like that, and I know you are at times too, very little sleep. I got an idea in my head. I got to make it happen. So he called about three in the morning. He said, "You've got to come to my house now. If you don't come to my house now, you're going to regret it for the rest of your life." And I said, "Listen, I got my missus here. What am I going to say to her? You got to tell me why, Yuri." Yes, I can. You got to come in now. Get in your car. You stop moaning. You got a Ferrari. Get in your car. Drive up to the house. It's early hours of the morning. Now, love you. Bye. And I was like, "Dear me!" So I had a bit of a row with my missus at the time. Got in my car. Drove to his house. Took about three hours or so kept to the speed limit of course got there drove down gates open to his house nothing really suspicious there was a couple of black suvs outside walking in the house um and this frail man walks up to me and goes shakes his well he bows first he goes like bows to me like you're doing the martial arts put his hand out so hi for years people have been asking me where i buy my watches many of you may know i'm a watch collector I'm a watch investor, and those as an asset class have done me very well in the last 15 years. I have never shared where I source my watches from or my watch dealer until now. My watch dealer used to be a professional footballer for Manchester United, and he formed a watch brand called Broadwalk, and he sources the higher-end brands like Rolex, Audemars Piguet, Patek Philippe and Richard Mille. I trust him, I've used him for many years, and recently we've done a partnership Hence, I'm inviting you, if you want to start investing in watches and protect your money from the banks and inflation, to check out Broadwalk. That's B-R-O-A-D-W-A-L-K. And the website is broadwalkgroup.com. The email is sales at broadwalkgroup.com. And please don't share this, but his number is 07-496-878-153. Obviously, only message him if you're serious about buying and investing in the higher-end watches. People have been asking me for years, and for the first time ever, you can get access to my watch team. I'm Michael Jackson, nice to meet you, sir. And I'm like, he bowed to me. I know who you are, but what the heck are you doing here? You know, and, and uh, I only watched him in show a couple of weeks ago. Um, and it, t- it just turned out that he was a, he's a Bruce Lee fanatic, and he wanted to meet Shannon Lee and linda lee and and also yuri wanted to put people in his life that he could trust and i was already financially independent he knew i didn't really need anything from mike and also michael had a problem with security he, his longtime bodyguards have retired i know the new ones were selling stories and stuff it cost him a fortune per month to maintain he just couldn't talk or answer his phone when he was around these people so we became friends solid friends and we would go to a cinema together have curries at yuri's house another friend's house we watched the matrix together go to the movies and stuff with with uh, my ex-wife and different and and the kids and yeah we hanged out and then I just ended up being his kind of informal bodyguard I guess and and advisor and friend for the final ten years of his life. Wow, bit weird, I guess. Yeah, just a bit random. So when yeah. you say informal, did he hire you as his bodyguard, or you just spent ten years protecting him and being his friend? He, he um, wanted to pay me, but I didn't want to accept his money because I just felt he was a friend first. And everybody who pays him money, the relationship changes. And I, I had access. I had time on my hands. It wasn't a problem for me to take a couple of weeks out if he was in town or if I had to go to the States to help protect him. Plus, I had access then to a couple of hundred instructors who can help him for free as well. And I think that's why it lasted well. Is the fact that I never wanted no money from Mike. He actually cost me money most of the time. And, you know, and that's how the relationship worked. And we became such close buddies. There was no exchange of money. He asked, I declined it. And that's that, you know, and uh, that's why it worked out. And from that, obviously, when you mix some of that inner circle, it don't stop there. 
So when you're friends with Michael Jackson, everyone wants to be your friend and you've got access to his inner circle, which you're talking multi-billionaires and the most famous men in the world who became my very close friends and advisors. And um, that's what made me where I am today. I truly believe that. You always say, Rob. Right. So, Matt, yeah. Top three things you learned from Michael Jackson and the billionaires. Um, you know, about it could be life, but, you know, obviously we love talking business too. And what I noticed is from them, they don't talk about people uh, and things. They talked about ideas. And it, when we would have dinner, they would talk, it'd, it'd be around the table. And I'm wondering how, how on earth I got here in the first place. But on a Saturday night, they're not watching soap operas and stuff like that. They're networking about how can we make my next billion and next idea, you know, that that's the way they works. They keep each other accountable on a high level, very high level. Um, Michael was a pain. I, I used to cut the eyes to think he was a nuisance to me because he used to ring me when out of the blue, how many new schools you done this month? And I'm like four or five. And then I'd always throw the question back to people like, how are you doing, Mike? So sure, I'm doing great. I've just done an 18 million deal to tour Korea. Mm-hmm. And I used to come off the phone and think, oh man, I need to up my game a bit. But um, it was uh, it, it, it was just, yeah, no, they don't talk about ideas. There's nothing that cannot be done or reached is another thing. And qualifications at school, what I really learned is none of them had any qualifications whatsoever. Now, like going back to Mike, he can't even play an instrument. Michael can't play an instrument. He can do a few bits on the piano and stuff. And stuff. I should talk about him while he's still alive. It's strange, huh? But, um, and all, all these guys sat around the table, and I'm talking about like the owner of Harrods as well, Mohammed Al Fayed. I remember be, being at his house at the dinner table, and we had uh, Daryl Hannah there, the movie star, was there with us at dinner. Michael was sat next to me, you know, doing his usual pranks, throwing grapes at me and things like that. But they they just talking about these big things, and I'm there. Whereas my friends were going out and texting me saying, "Oh, we're going to a club tonight. Do you want to come with us?" And I can't text back them saying. I was sat next to Britney Spears, Daryl Hannah, Michael Jackson, my hand fired. I don't think I'm flipping nuts. So uh, I used to make up excuses. It wasn't until I was sort, sort out in public with him that people really started to get get the idea of it. But they, they're just on a whole different level. They, they're, they're reading books all the time. That's the other thing. Michael used to read three or four nonfiction books per week. And and they just all very tight in a circle. They keep themselves to themselves. And, and um you, yeah, you, you don't say where, where you are. You don't give away things there. The trust issue was it was really difficult. The, the, the trust, even for me, I couldn't say to people what what who's doing and so on. And and that's the way it worked, you know. And uh, but you know, the, the sad thing with me, Rob, is that I gained a lot of friends when Michael and me become, become public as friends, you know, and working with him and so on. But when he died, I lost a lot of friends that night. I never heard from him ever again. A lot of family members too. Funny enough. Um, but it's that network of you could achieve anything you want. It doesn't matter what you learn at school. Qualifications don't come into it. And do you know the most important thing is the mindset. you got a poor boy from Gary, Indiana, one of lots of children, screwed up into the house, tiny, to two-bedroom tiny house, all these like six bunk beds to get the Jackson 5 in, and his sisters. And he's got an older sister called, called Reby too. He's not as famous. All there. And his dad couldn't even afford shoes, had holes in for working in the coal mine, you know, steel mines. And yet, look where he become. He became, even now, he's the biggest earner last year, biggest earning pop star last year. Thinking over $1.6 billion in death, and he's not even here, which is insane. When you, when you hang around people, you, you're going to pick up their mindset, the way they believe, their gestures, everything you know my wife says to me all the time it's funny because when i see michael on tv you got this gesture you must have got it from him but um and the way he would reply to a question and even today i still think about the lessons he's taught me and it's just the thing i know people we, we know the elephant in the room here he's the most controversial man on earth he made them he wanted himself to be that he would always tell me when we're out I want my life to be the biggest mystery on earth i want people not to know if i'm gay or straight i want people to uh to, I want to be the most controversial man ever because that's how I'm going to stay in the media and sell records and stay relevant. Hence the face mask, the tape on his nose, the finger, the, the tape on his fingers and stuff. Um, and he said, if people want to be interested in you, you have to be interested in Matt. You can't just be a boring old singer and stuff. And and that was the thing with him. And uh, 
Yeah, and, and he, he had that mastered. You don't get to be the most famous man in the world with no qualifications unless you've studied. And when I met some of his friends, like Stevie Wonder and stuff like that, they, they, they knew him when he was a child growing up at, at uh, Motown. And they said, you know what, Michael was such a pain. He used to say question after question. We used to be so tired of it. How would you do this? And he was absorbing all the information. That's why he wanted to, to meet Bruce Lee's daughter and his ex-wife. So he wanted to know what Bruce had there to be the most famous martial arts icon ever. And he wanted to learn that and implement it into his life. Mm, yeah, I um, I was asked when I was being interviewed for Shaq Hussain's podcast, he asked me what are the commonalities in all the billionaires you've met and uh, interviewed. And there are many, and I won't go into all of them now because obviously this is for you, Matt, this episode. But curiosity is common in all of them. Like when I bring them on my podcast, I'm expecting to interview them and ask all the questions. And they end up interviewing me and asking me the questions. Now, they're a billionaire and I'm not. But, of course, I've got a successful podcast and I'm live streaming it in YouTube. What's the StreamYard thing? there? How do you use that? Or oh, this new media, this is all really interesting. How many people is this going out to? What platforms is it going on? And, and they're just so fascinated, every single one. And it sounds like Michael was exactly the same. He was exactly the same. Yeah, he, he was just, uh, he was on it. He was just on it. Do, do you know one thing he taught me earlier on? Don't be a follower, be a pioneer. Model, we're all big fans of modeling people. So I modeled the guy in the States, right? The martial arts guy, success millionaire. He said, but model people and then learn from them and then make it better than you've ever done before and practice, practice, practice. So he would learn from his icons. He used to say like James Brown, Fred Astaire, Diana Ross. He would model everything they did. If you watch James Brown dancing and watch Mike dance, you'll see some things there. If you watch Mike dance on stage, you see the martial arts are in there. They, they, all the Jackson five are trained in martial arts. They did uh, Kung Fu. They all got black belts. Joe Jackson made them do that. Even Mike, you'll see his kicks and his blocks in there and so on. But, uh, model people and then build on it and become a pioneer not a follower that was michael's thing and that was all of his inner circle too like steven spielberg was one of his close friends and he always used to say this this is a good good movie but it could have been better and i tell you what rob if you try and sit down with these guys i'm sure you have done and you watch a movie or a documentary it was irritating because they would like so that could have been filmed better. They should have shot that from another angle. They should have made this story better by making it more controversial. And I'm like, Mike, will you just shut up so we can just watch this thing? Totally analyze it and absorb him. He won't read a book unless he learned from it. He won't watch the TV unless he learned. He won't watch the news. He just wanted to know how to take his life to the next level. Unfortunately, if yeah. social media were, uh, was around that now, things might have been a bit different. But with the tabloid media and stuff, you've got to trust journalists to portray you. And if you create yourself as a mystique and they and, and so on, you can't put it right unless they do it, then obviously he died in 2009. The world's changed a lot since then. Now he could jump on Clubhouse and kill out rumors and false stories, or he could do a Facebook Live. Back then, we had MySpace, and Michael was just learning how to do emails but wasn't very good at it. So, um, yeah, it, it's just a whole, whole new thing. It's all about personal branding. Uh, the, the other main thing I picked up for them too, and I, I quickly go through it, I, and I name some names I think I'm allowed to, okay? So let's start with Michael, personal branding. How's he done it, Rob? Well, white glove? Why has he only got one white glove? Because you're going to ask, why is Michael only wearing one white glove? doesn't make any sense. When he's dancing, it's going to draw his attention to all the movement. He's, start, he's got diamonds all over it and so on. White socks, short trousers. Well, why, your trousers are too short, Mike. Why is that? He wants the public asking that. You know, loafers. That's all he used to wear was those black loafers. The tape on his fingers. I asked him once, Michael, what's wrong? Why are you putting tape on your fingers for? And he said to me, exactly. I want people to ask that question so I stay relevant and stay in the media. Um, the other big thing, which is controversial, always, he came out of this hotel room and we we're going to a very high-profile business event and he was close a property deal. And Michael had all this sticky tape all over his nose. And he saw I was staring at it. And I wasn't too pleased about it. I was a bit concerned. And he said, Matt, don't worry. It's just allergy tape. It's just it's to, to satisfy the fuzzled puzzle so I can make the front pages of all the tabloids over the next few days. My nose is not falling off and stuff, but I want them to say that, you know? And then like the face mask now, which is ironic for me because it's like 
not everyone even I wear when I first put one on I think this is madness man I used to walk <laughs> say to Michael you got to put that thing on I'm not walking, I'm not walking with you into a bookstore because it's embarrassing you know but he put a face mask on because people he knew people want to know why and what's he trying to hide behind that and then he'd, he'd used makeup to make himself look worse sometimes or to get in the media you know and to try and get the headlines the, the first conversation when we got to a new city was how can I make the media the front pages what can we do what can we do? Um, right. Let me ask you this, Matt. Let me ask you this. Tell us something about Michael that he's very misunderstood about or maybe no one really knows about him, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, he was into women. I mean, he loved women. I mean, that's that's the thing, guys. I mean, I'm sorry. He, he fooled you. You fell into his trap. That's what he wanted. And it's backfired because he's not here to speak for himself. And we didn't want to talk about it until last year because that awful documentary came out. And then I, then I decided it's time to speak out. Uh, I know he's into women because I used to sneak them into his room and help protect his image. And, um, yeah, he had girlfriends right up to the very end. He didn't want that to be public. Only reason being, Rob, to keep the mystique and from five years old, the first thing you were taught by a record label back then is you're not allowed to have a girlfriend because it will upset your fan base. And he listened to oh, them. To them. Wow. And, uh Mm. yeah that was the reason I, he he like and when he would break up from a girl i remember he was sat next to me in the back of a car and he would like see a see a girl outside of those hands like oh gee i love to have her in my in my room you know um but yeah he was also very respectful too but he, he uh when you're as famous as him it's very hard to meet a, a girl a girlfriend but now he had a regular woman right up to the end of his life and various girlfriends who have uh interestingly written books and spoke to the media but the media say they say we know about this but we don't want to write about it because it doesn't go with the narrative that was the, the thing um, the other thing too that wow. documentary last year is full of rubbish i know really? those guys um absolutely yeah one of them has already lost their case too uh, what they did mention that documentary is that they're both suing the Jackson State for hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, that's the narrative of the story, surely. I think had the public watched that, and that came up on the screen, that Wade and James are suing the Michael Jackson State for hundreds of millions of dollars, they would flick the channel. And that, that made us very, very, very happy being covered in that piece. You know, So we went on and we did something on Alex the Truth and, and combated that. But no, it's just coming up. Those, those two guys both gave evidence in his trial in 2005 because they uh star witnesses and and said they did you know he did nothing to them he was into women but in america if you get past seven years if you lie on oath then they can't come back after you so they waited to 2012 and, and we got to talk about the other allegation too geordie chandler which is very famous 1993 michael jack pay off geordie chandler he was in the middle of a world tour called dangerous he had no choice because his insurance company made him his insurance company paid him and that's all out there paperwork documented and so on michael wanted to fight it to go to court but big money in the tours back then you know eighty thousand people in a stadium times eight per country around the world they wanted to get him back out on tour so they put him in the corners just get this behind us what's 20 million to you and his insurance can be paid off he had no choice it wasn't his decision he wanted to fight it wow there you go so this documentary then you think it's lies I know it's lies. I know it. And why hasn't it been played since, Rob? Where is it? And the four-hour version, I think it's cut down to like, it's like a fraction of that now. Listen, these guys, one of the guys said he was abused by Michael in Neverland at the train station in in, in uh, early 90s. Well, the train station wasn't built until the late 90s. He would have been in his adulthood by then. Well, all we had to do is go back to the architect and get the planning and the builders. And you can see where it's stamped. He would have been in his an adult life by then. So he can't be abused in the train station that wasn't built. It was absolutely mm. impossible. It was sad of Michael, um, Rob, because I kind of had the bad 10 years in some ways. Um, there were some good times too, but it, the, being the biggest star in the world, you were the biggest target. And he was so nice, so nice. And at the same time, business-wise, very, very clever, but a little bit too trusting because he was always treating people to, to treat them in every way. He would always remind us when we're in public. Um, when we're in public, we refer to him as Mr. Jackson, be very respectful, treat your fans. He said, remember, those fans put me where I am. They made me who I am. 
treat them with respect. If, even if they get overexcited, please, you know, look after them. And sometimes they would chuck themselves under his car and to try and get to meet him because he would pay for their hospital bills and so on. And, and at times he would visit them. So it, he, he, he treated everyone with respect. He would call, if he met you, he'd call you sir and stuff. And, and I'd never seen anything quite like it, you know. So he didn't assume he was this megastar. He just, to him, he was, he doesn't know any different. He never knew any different. Mm. And for me, it was just, uh, had I been a success without him in my life? I don't know. I think I would have been successful to a degree, but he taught me how to franchise. When I said I've got five martial arts schools and I can't do anything else, he's like, sure you can. You could do franchising. And I said, okay, it's never been done in the martial arts before. He said, yeah, that's exactly why you got to do it. And he taught me how to mm. do it. He introduced me to a franchise lawyer and right. he kept me accountable. Wow. Yeah. And now you've got a thousand in how many? Got a thousand eighty in the martial arts and we've got several hundred in Pilates. Right. Where should we go with this? Yeah, let's talk about you, Matt. How did that documentary coming out affect you? We know how it affected Michael. You know, you've um, shared your version of that story. But how did it affect you? Did you lose friends? Did people judge you vicariously? Because obviously you were with him for so long. Um, well, I, I'm a director of a, of a huge company linked to educating children. So for me, in 2005, sticking up for Michael, willing to be a witness for him in his trial and speaking out for him, you know, parents back then were like, is this the right thing to do? Now, our PR advisors, most of his friends, his big famous friends, stayed the hell out of this because their advisors say, you'll lose this endorsement, this endorsement. I couldn't care less, Rob. That guy's done so much for me. He, he's been a family friend. My you know, mum died at 56 with breast cancer. He would call her every day, um, and she would say, if it weren't for him pushing me and keeping me inspired and saying positive, then... Um, Wherever he was in the world, he'd always try and make a, a phone call to my mother. Um, so I interviewed a chap called Darren Stanton on my podcast who's watching, um, and he's like a specialist in in lie detecting. And he said he analysed the guys you were talking about on that documentary, and he said he agrees they lied about him. Without a doubt. There you go. <laughs> yeah, so how did it affect you? When all this came out, um, did you lose friends? Did it affect you, you your brand and reputation? No, I mean, um, that everyone knows I would not be linked to him because I'm linked to this children's massive organization if I did not know the truth about his his sex life, what he was into, who he was as a person. What I did know, though, Rob, is that the image, his personal brand he created had backfired on him and he's not here to defend himself. So it affected me because he was he was my best friend and I stayed quiet. I wanted to watch it, absorb it. And yeah, I had some tears. I was upset about it and stuff. And his inner circle in contact with me. What I was waiting for is, I mean, I'm not big famous, right? But he's got some big famous friends out there who who can make statements, who know what he's really really about. And the, their advisors didn't want them to speak out. I would ring certain Hollywood stars he would hang out with and say, "Are you going to talk out?" Even a member of his family actually was very famous and say. Why are you talking out about about your brother? Oh, my record company they won't allow me to, you know, or uh, my PR company doesn't want me to get to talk about it, you know, and uh, or I lose this deal or this endorsement. Well, for me, I thought, I'm not going to let my friend. And so I got we got other mutual friends. So we all got together and then we we hit out hard, man, at it with, with the media, TV. We made a documentary on Amazon Prime called Trace the Truth, um, where we we prove things like the train station. We talked about his love life for the first time ever. And we went on the attack and we won. We won it. I mean, that we proved those guys wrong. And uh, James Safechuck's been thrown out court already for not being adding up. The other guy hasn't got a hope, man. I mean, he's got no hope as far as I'm concerned. Wade. Wade, Wade performed in Michael's tribute when Michael died. He was on stage as a dancer. The other guy was accusing him. Um, it, was just, it was just a very attempt. And it all, it all states back to his image. Unfortunately, you, when he died, he never got to get across his real image. He tried to with the Martin Bashir documentary. He tried to, but even that guy messed around with the footage and stuff. Mm. It was not supposed to be about his kids and things. It's supposed to be about the music, his dance, his achievements, and clearing up the myths. And we were supposed to get a proof tape. He didn't turn up. And then Martin Bashir, we, we never heard from him again. You know? And if it wasn't for that documentary, I do wonder if he'd still be alive. 
Michael was trying mm. to clear up his personal facts. He realized people viewed him differently when, in fact, he's just doing what he was taught. Market, be controversial, stay interested in people, be interested in you, um, to stay relevant. Madonna does it. She changes her image all the time. It's not uncommon. Yeah. He didn't upset the fans. He felt his sex life has got nothing to do with his music and his stage. He didn't want to upset his fans. That's the way Motown taught him at a very young age. Don't say about when you're married or got a girlfriend. It's none of their business. And um, yeah. and, that's, and he went on to – he does some controversial stuff. Like buying the Beatles catalog was controversial, obviously. And he was ruthless in business, extremely ruthless. That He put his glasses on. He just changed. Bang. He was a ruthless man when it comes to business. So I think he got that from his father. Yeah. Okay. We've got loads of cool comments and questions coming in. It's going a bit wild here. I'm trying to stay up with it. Um, but it is my job also to do challenge as well as support. I've been getting on really well with you, and I um, I think that you're creating a very balanced perspective here. I think that you're being very respectful. There's a couple of people on YouTube who are like, get him to prove he was Michael Jackson's bodyguard. Well, I think if you have a look on, on the internet, you can find that out. But let's play with that for a minute just to prove that we can dance with the critics. Were you really Michael Jackson's bodyguard for 10 years? Someone's asking you to prove it on YouTube. It would be YouTube, by the way. Yeah, just stick in Matt for this Michael Jackson on YouTube. I mean, there's like hundreds of hours of me and him. Yeah. yeah. In Google, <laughs> go to my Instagram. It's like, I mean, come on. Flipping it. Actually, you know, the, the, ten, the 10 year thing, you got to remember from, from uh, 1999 to 2004, we did a lot of public events. And then he had the allegations, 2005, he was stuck in America. Then he went to Bahrain. So I became more of a friend to him and someone he can rely on for the last four years of his life. So, yeah, bodyguarding maybe the first four or five public events. We didn't do any more public events. We went to Earl's Court. Other than that, in the, in the trial, he was looked after the Nation of Islam. I couldn't handle that. I mean, it was the biggest media event ever, 10 times bigger than the O.J. Simpson trial. So uh, that's not for me. I'm not, I can't use guns and stuff. But no, that's just a ridiculous question. They've ever answered that. I mean, just put it in Google. I mean, dear me, I've been on countless TV programs. They don't, they research you, and um, a documentary has been made about it. Where I'm speakers, they research the hell out of your life. And yeah, what, what do you think? I'm stood, stood around with him for hours on there. But yeah, just put my name in, there, in his name into YouTube, and then they'll find out that. So, do you know what it is with that thing? A lot of people don't think he's like like a real person. It can't, I used to walk down uh, hotel corridors with him, people be checking out, and they, bump into him like it can't be you it just can't be it must be a lookalike and he's like well I, I gotta be somewhere sometime you know i'm a real person you know and it's like the whole thing about the queen she does use the toilet right you know but uh <laughs> yeah, yeah I, right. I don't yeah. have to prove anything i don't have to prove anything rob it's all out there it's social no, you, it's no you don't and thanks for answering the question it's just i always like to bring in a couple of critics because I think we should dance with that and show that we're not scared to embrace that and just pick all the nice comments. I think that's important. Um, so we're going to do a couple of different types of rounds now, Matt. So if you're up for this, one will be a cheeky round, and I'm going to ask you a few cheeky questions. You can decline to answer. We'll see how brave I'm going to be, but I don't think you will. And then what we're going to do uh, towards the end is we're going to do a, a quick fire round. Now, you can go into some detail if you want, but just to let you know, it's a sort of a quick fire round. Um, I'm getting loads of comments coming in, by the way, so um, everyone seems to be loving this. Right. So here we go for the cheeky round. Um, what's the biggest fight you've had or security threat around Michael? Either or. Yeah, he, well, he won, right? He stayed controversial, even in death. They fell into his trap. That's what he would say. They fall into my trap. He, he would love that. He would love the fact that people are still talking about him 10 years after he's died and still can't work him out. He would love that. Oh, and mm. there's other examples too. Simon Cowell. What's he wear? What's his personal brand? Same white shirt, black trousers. You don't see him in any other clothes, right? Ever. Because he understands that. That's the way it's going to be. And then you've got mm. Tony Robbins. What's he known for? Firewall. Yuri Geller. Spoon bending. You know, it, you just got Arnold with the big muscles and, uh, the, the catchphrases, they all had a little twist to them. All the, all the ones have got something niched that's enabled them to get to superstardom. That's what I've noticed. Okay, great. So uh, what's the biggest fight you've ever had? The biggest scrap you've ever had? You're on what, seventh, Dan? Biggest fight you've ever had? Hey, the biggest fight I ever have is, is in my own mind about <laughs> uh, what I can achieve. Uh, honestly, 
is you know can, can i can i grow even further the business can i make more millions can i can i get my franchises to a bigger level it's i'm i'm my own worst competitor you know and uh i have to use my martial arts mindset to get through that you know all the time can, can i have more houses you know you know can i do this can, can i achieve the getting the helicopter one day and the, and the, all that type of stuff so my biggest competitor is myself you know have you ever had a proper fight though like gloves off not in the not sparring proper fight no, because martial arts competitions, yeah, when you're younger, but that doesn't count because when they hit you and they point scored, then they pull you away again. I don't really count. Yeah, yeah. But no, because I didn't, I didn't go to the nightclubs, Rob. I, I didn't drink yeah. alcohol until I was 27. I never had a normal life, you know, and I'm not going to moan about that. I couldn't yeah. go to nightclubs because that was against my inner circle of teaching. You yeah. do the opposite to what everyone else is doing. That's yeah. what they taught me. They would be horrified. It only became apparent to me when I got, I got married at, um, 20, my re rehearsal marriage. We were very good friends with me and her now still. I've got three daughters with her. And when I tried to organize my stag do to go out, I realized there was an issue. I haven't got a friend that's normal. It was impossible, impossible to organize. It was just literally me and one friend who wasn't famous. Or not, he didn't require all his bodyguards and security around him and, and so on. Um, so we went bowling together. That was it. I mean, it's... Uh, I've had a very different life. So now, if I did go to the nightclubs, it's sure as hell I would have got into fights because people find they found my life strange. I, I thought it was normal. Now I look back at 41 years old and I realize why well, people thought it's strange where you're, you you got permed hair, ponytail. You, we all do silly things. You're in good shape. You've got the baby all along, trying to look cool. You've got the Ferrari driving around the little town. You're the multi-millionaire and your best mates are Michael Jackson and, and the most famous people in the world. Uh, you, they cannot relate to you. I, I get that now. Back then, I thought, why are people treating me like that? Why am I getting so much hate? I don't understand it. I'm so such a nice guy. Why are people judging about me, writing on these forums? They've never even met me. If they met me, they see you know, my, my my franchises. They call me the tracksuit millionaire because I'm literally just a I'm just tracksuit man. I, I mean, I'm just a normal guy. I'm just I'm still a martial artist at heart. I just love my martial arts and my fitness and stuff. That the money came as a byproduct with me. You know, and I just ha I just love helping people succeed. I, I I love making millionaires. That's my thing. I love people doing it, and it's not because I want to make the money. I just I just love it. I can retire and never want to work. I could done that when I was early twenties. I tried it. It didn't work out for me. I ended up on antidepressants and sleeping tablets. You know, it didn't work out. That's not. I have to be creative, and for me, I, I enjoy just inspiring and helping other people from my mad weird story that they can become anything they want to be if they just follow the system, follow the mindset, follow the model, the blueprint. And I've got that. And and that's it. So, no, I didn't get into the fights because in martial arts, you're taught to avoid the fights. Yeah. So, yeah, if I went into a nightclub at 20 years old, haven't been on TV, someone mentioned here they saw me on TV with him at an event in Exeter, I think. Um, I got him to go to Exeter to do, uh, to do a public – we raised money for HIV and AIDS. Um, a lot of money, over a hundred thousand, I think. And I asked Michael if he would attend, and he attended along with my friend Yuri. Yuri had the football ground at the time, and Michael did a half an hour speech. And no one thought Michael Jackson was going to come to Exeter. He, he was in and out of Devon all the time to see me and his family, and his mum stayed at my house and so on. And he he turned up, and they couldn't believe it. He did this speech and stuff and things, and uh, it, it was great. Uh, oh, Shane, hey Shane, nice to see you. one of my friends. He used to train with me when I was a. Uh, 14 years old at a gym in Swindon before the dream happened to remember that. Um, Jumping yeah. back then, next question. I got you. So next one um, is what's the most opulent thing you saw Michael Jackson buy in one go? Okay. The truth to this, right? He would do this. I know what you guys are getting at, right? Is he going to a store and he'll go around the store and he'll spend like five, six million in an hour. And that's been well on TV shows and stuff. That's why someone's asking the question. What you don't see is he sends most of it back the next day. He's done a deal with a store for promo and to keep up his image. And I think the most <laughs> okay, that's the truth. But on top of that, we want the truth. We want the truth. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, Michael won't have a problem with me telling you that. So, you know, like the, the biggest one in the Mike Bashir documentary, he went to Vegas um, and he went around his store and he said, "I'll have this." I don't know if you watched it, Rob. I'll have that one. And they were like, "He spent like ten million or something," but. We had to get, send it all back 
two days later. <laughs> okay, I tell, I tell you, okay. The one he did for real is due to a time element. He he was a great artist. It's probably not very well known about him. He like he could draw just as well as he could sing. He was phenomenal. And he would have an air bunker where he would go to, and it would be like his um, like his meditation time, where he he had the air, airplane bunker locked down, and he had an artist coach with him, and he would draw, and all his pictures are there, and it escapes him for him. Um, when we were in London once, he found out there's this shop that specialised in art, and he wanted to visit. And I said, Mike, what do you want to do? Do you want me to ask him to shut it down for you, or do you want to just go for it? You know, sometimes it works out. Sometimes we get ourselves in trouble. We just went for it. We'd shut down off the street. Um, so he said, let's just go for it. So we turned up. We we uh, we walk into the shop. As far as I remember, this guy on his mobile phone, he's like, holy, you wouldn't believe it just walked past me. And we go into the shop, and he was taking ages browsing through all these books. And this bookshop just specialized on art, unique art. And uh, and uh, we had to catch a plane. And I, and I went to Michael. I said, Michael, you know, it's the time – we, we need to get a move on. And he goes, hmm. Uh, I said, tell them I take it all. I said, what do you mean? Again, he had a stack of about seven books so far. He said, um, how much? How long do we have? Ten minutes now. And he said, I need to take it all. So I'm not going to go up to her and tell her, you want to take every book in her shop? Um, he said, oh, I'll do it. He said, they went up to a step and said, hey, um, could I have all this sent to my ranch, please? I want to take everything. And she, she had the best business day in her life. <laughs> and... Uh, and we had to rush off. And it's funny, you know, the stuff went to Neverland. And two days later, the lady called me. She managed to track me down from my martial arts schools. And um, she said, listen, I don't know if you remember me, but, but Michael Jackson bought my whole shop out the other day. But I've not been paid. And I'm worried. I'm going to go broke. And I tried ringing Mike. I couldn't get hold of him. And then I called his PA. I said, is this girl's genuine. He does own the money. And it's just because of the fans were outside. And it just... The, the, the man that surrounded him, he didn't get around to, to the uh, other PA paying it. We had to rush off quick. And then she settled the bill. You know, it's ironic, really. She settled the bill. I, I reassured her, I promise you, you'll get paid. But those books, they just went straight to the ranch. So he did he did impulsive buy, but he was very clever with his money. Very clever. He was very, mm. very, very smart. He put all his money into music publishing. That was his thing. Buying people's music. Yeah. Okay, great. So one more, and then we're going to move into the quick fire round i've got a call in about 15 20 minutes something like that there's a couple of questions that are on the comments that i'm going to answer there's one guy that's asked the same question 10 times because he thinks i'm not watching but i'm trying to oh. listen to you i'm thinking i'm trying to listen to you as well matt and make sure that i honor the questions that i've already got and you answer that by i'm going to ask that about the doctor so don't worry right so um does it annoy you when people only want to talk about michael jackson when he died yeah and I had to have counselling for that. Because when your friend dies, there's a bereavement process. When a superstar friend dies, everywhere you go, his music's playing more than ever before. You get an offers, you get a media attack and write untrue stories about you that are complete nonsense. And they write allegedly, and I can't do nothing. My lawyers can't do anything about it. Even even th every day I wake up to it. Today I woke up to a Google alert about a story about me and Michael. No, I don't know anything about it. They just rehashed whatever they want. Um, but now I've learned to respect it. I actually asked my PR company, can, is there any way that when people write about me, they can talk about me as a business person now still and go back to the martial arts champion, the, the successful martial arts guy, and not talk about Michael? And they said, I'm really sorry, Matt. The guy's the biggest star in the world. You're in his shadow. You're going to have to accept for the rest of your life you'll always be known as Michael Jackson's former bodyguard, just like Alvis Presley's bodyguard. He's a good friend of mine. He's always he's, he's very successful martial artist. He's always wrote about first line, Alvis Presley's bodyguard. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's a downside to that and an upside, but I've learned to live with it now. Yeah. Every, every day I get asked about it. If I, in normal times, I go out in the street, people want to talk to me about yeah. Michael. Sure. So. Well, hopefully you feel um, I've spoke about you as much as Michael on this interview, and I'm going to be speaking about you for the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven um, fast power round questions. And obviously, since we've got to know each other, we've not really talked about that because – you know, that's an interesting part of your story, but you are Matt. You are not Michael. Um, so uh, this is the quick fire round. So if you could do like a sentence for each one, what drives you? To leave a legacy for my children, because I believe the world is going to be difficult in the future. And I want my money to be there for them forever. 
Uh, so I've got assets and things in place. So when I die one day, it'll always live and provide for them. Next then, what's the best advice you ever remember receiving? You haters are free publicists. <laughs> I knew you like that. Yeah, Grant's been saying that in Clubhouse, hasn't he? I earn more money out of my haters. Um, what's the worst advice you can remember receiving? Money is the root of all evil. And uh, my, money um, don't change your life. What advice would you give to the 20-year-old self of you that's got all these franchises and classes and is a millionaire? Um, don't don't let your ego go to your head with your top off with a perm, your pecs, your abs in a Ferrari, driving around a little town in Barstable, being Mr. Big Shot, because you're going to have a down, downtime too. Not everything you touch is going to go to gold. And a different type of question, what advice would you give your older self? Like 60-year-old Matt, what advice would you give your older self? What advice would I give my old self when I'm 60? Uh, I, I, I hope that it would be that I've I've spent just as enough time with my family than I have my kids. And the, the advice would be to, to get the balance right. Get the balance right. Okay. I, I, got, I had all the money in the world, Rob. I couldn't save my mum from cancer at 56. Putting your mum in the ground at 56 years old when you're multi-millionaire with powerful friends didn't mean nothing. I, I couldn't save her, could I? So it, there's, it's, you've, got, you've got to put things in perspective. Money's great. You arrive at your problems with style and you can help others. That's the great thing about money. Other than that, you've only got the same meal. You've got a roof over the head. The family is what counts. And you learn that. And I hope people listen to this. You'll learn that by hard knocks. It's very hard to teach. And I try and teach my franchise that don't focus on the money, focus on being good, provide a good service. The money is the rewards that come back, points. Is there one thing that's wrong with the world that you'd like to change? Yeah, they don't teach you about money. You go to school and you don't learn about money. They teach you the wrong stuff. They teach you to, to do well, get a job, study hard, get a job, earn money, buy a house, and then retire at 65 and maybe you have 10 years of your life to do what you want. That's just messed up. It just doesn't make any sense. And then if you do make a lot messed up with the world, they do anything they can to hate you and try and criticize you. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's bizarre. They need to teach the world about money. I definitely agree with that. I wrote the book called Money to teach the world about money. I have a money podcast called Money to teach the world about money. I have a foundation to help young and underprivileged entrepreneurs start and scale their businesses. Um, the meaningful businesses that change the world. So we definitely have very similar interests there. Okay. If there's one person alive today that you'd love to see interviewed on a podcast like The Disruptive Entrepreneur, who would it be? Because I trust you, Rob. I'd, it'd have to be, uh, I'd have to, uh, if he was alive, it would have to be Michael because you, you'd be able to get the truth out of him and I wouldn't have to trust some crazy journalist to do it who's probably and hasn't done it. Oh, that, I, that's, I take that as a real compliment. Um, so thank you, Matt, for that. This podcast is called The Disruptive Entrepreneur. What does the word disruptive mean to you? Going against the grain, doing that others don't, uh, being in that top 3%. 97% of the population work for the top three. Learn how to get in the top 3%. That's what disruption means to me. Do it, get in there, smash it up, hit the goals, you know, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful brand, actually. I, I love the name, uh, Rob. I'm jealous you've got it. <laughs> Thank you. So here we go, um, Matt. Did you ever see the doctor, the doctor that killed Michael? I spoke to the doctor when he came out of jail uh, and I heard him out. And of course, I knew the doctor, Conrad Murray. He was nothing more than a family doctor who treated Michael's children for a flu um, and a common cold would pop by every now and then. He didn't realize when he gave up his four practices as a cardiologist what he was getting into. Now, he was just a full guy, Rob, and this is an honest pod podcast. There, were, there was never a time in my life, really, when we would be out on the road where there was not a doctor around Michael. And when I would ask him about it, he would say to me, my body is a machine. My work is all about my body being able to do what it does. And I'm approaching 50 years old. Don't worry about it. It's prescription medicine is prescribed to me. It's not hard drugs. He would never touch hard drugs. But we didn't know what was going on in that part of the bedroom with, with the oxygen, all that crazy stuff. But uh, he was under a lot of pressure. I don't, I don't obviously forgive him for what he'd done, but he was just one of many doctors who should be in jail right now. There's a couple of doctors who are still alive, and they know it, 
One in particular, I was talking to, to a friend of Michael's last night, who's godfather to Michael's kids, that this doctor should be in jail the rest of his life. But the last one, Conrad Murray, is just a family guy, and he was the full, we call him the full guy. Michael's inner circle call him. Yeah. Matt, I've had loads of fun, loads of fun. Um, we had so many comments. We've even got a spammer on here now. Should we give him a bit of airtime air as well? Um, he's spamming every single person saying, text him on WhatsApp and get your $5,000 payment now. We've had it all. This interview has had everything. How um, Matt became you know, one of the most famous martial artists in the world, how he built a massive franchise of 1,018 martial arts schools, how he became a millionaire uh, at age 20, um, how, of course, all the strategies and tactics he learned from Michael, which I probably, I think I counted about seven or eight and billionaires. We've talked a lot about Michael and, of course, a lot about your own wisdom. Matt. I've had a great time. I hope you have. I hope this is the start of a lot of other things we do together. Um, we, we better get back on Clubhouse, haven't we? Better. Thank you very awesome. much, Matt. And Matt, let's put your link as well. Um, so yours is www.mf in a circle. Is that right? In a circle.com.com for your uh, webinar. There you go. That's just going up there now as well. So bang. And where can we follow you, Matt? Where are you, where do you hang out online? All my followers and listeners, where can they um, you know see see your content and what you're up to? Yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on uh, Instagram, a big uh, official Matt Finesse, my Facebook page, our official Matt Finesse. And of course, Clubhouse, another interesting one, at Matt Finesse. <laughs> the up and coming Clubhouse, and Twitter, at, at official Matt Finesse, too. So they'll find me. They just whack it in Google. And okay. It's done. And Fides is F I double D E S for those that don't know you. Yeah, you got it. Matt, I've had a lot of fun. I'll chat to you on WhatsApp in a few minutes. Thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed it too. I'll see you on Clubhouse later, no doubt. Cheers, mate. Thank you. See you soon. Bye, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.